This is a recording from the University of Virginia and the More Than the Score Lecture Series, made possible by the University's Office of Engagement. On September 24, 2011, the question was asked, Will an Arab fall follow the Arab Spring? Our recording is introduced by Cindy Frederick, Associate Vice President for the Office of Engagement. It is now my pleasure to, inter- or to introduce our expert panel. We do have extended bios on the table because, as you can see, their experience is wide and vast. But our first panelist is Nat Howell, who is a graduate of the University of Virginia and joined UVA's faculty in 1992 following his career in the United States Foreign Service. Mr. Howell was appointed ambassador to the state of Kuwait to the Kuwait in 1987, just four months after the Iraq invasion of that country. Our next panelist is Frederick Hitz, who is a graduate of Princeton and Harvard and joined our faculty in 1998, following an extensive career with the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency. Mr. Hitz was appointed the first Inspector General of the CIA by President H. W. Bush in 1990. Our final panelist, John Norton Moore, was the first to join UVA's faculty in 1966 following his studies at Drew, Duke, and the University of Illinois. At UVA, Mr. Moore taught the first course in the country on national security law, and he has held six presidential appointments, including serving as the chair of the Interagency Task Force on the Law. Following today's presentation, books by our panelists will be available just behind the, uh, the curtain in the back, and titles include Siege, Why Spy, and The Real Lessons of the Vietnam War. So please join me in welcoming our panelists to More Than the Score. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. I'm, this is an experiment, and you'll know why in a moment. I have to confess I didn't bring a crystal ball with me. I probably couldn't see it anyway since I had cataract surgery on Thursday. Um, besides, I have found that crystal balls sh- seldom show me anything I don't already know. Maybe I just don't know how to work them. So as we zip through uh, the interesting develops in the Middle East, I will fall back on what has guided me uh, through a lifetime of working in that area, and that is the maxim that in the Middle East, things seldom are as bad as they seem or as good as they seem. There's always a hooker in there. Now, to recap a bit, and I have to go very quickly, earlier this year there was very little of importance happening in the Middle East. Uh, when what has been termed the Arab Dawn broke upon the scene in Tunisia as a consequence of a very relatively minor incident. It had been decades since Tunisia had been in in the news or anyone even thought much about it. And no one certainly considered it a catalyst for regional instability. Yet within a very short time, the regime there was compelled to resign. And the instability very quickly spread to Egypt and beyond. The regime of Husni Mubarak in Cairo was forced out by popular demonstrations when the Egyptian army refused to intervene in the way that might have quashed the uprising. And of course, there have been protests, which some of which are continuing, in other Arab states. Yemen, which is continuing now. President Saleh has just returned. The latest reports are he's killed 20 people since he's been back. 
Bahrain, Jordan, Morocco, and Syria. They all broke out, stimulating in some cases reforms, as in Morocco, and others strife that is still continuing, and which the prospects are not clear yet. It's not possible for me in the short time I have to analyze these individual cases, but we can get into any questions that might be bothering you, hopefully, in the discussion. But what I hope to do here is provide some structure um, for our discussion. First and foremost, the origins of these uprisings uh, have very little to do uh, with political Islam, with Al-Qaeda, or any of the things that have preoccupied us for the last decade. The demands are basically for reform, for a loosening of the grip of autocratic regimes, and for greater economic opportunities. In a sense, the movements are a rejection of political Islam or Islamic fundamentalism as a solution for the society's problems. Now, this does not mean that we can ignore political uh, Islam, because they will certainly, like all others, try to profit from this situation. And often they are more tightly organized and better disciplined than the democratic or pro-democratic forces that might oppose them. Unfortunately, I've seen time and time again, the liberals, the Democrats, splinter into a hundred different parties while the fundamentalist coalesce and the fundamentalists win out, whether it's in a university president election in Algeria when I was there or other situations. So we have to be cognizant of that. Second, this is not the first time that this novel situation of a reform movement sweeping the Middle East has occurred. So let's not get overexcited. Under Britain and France after World War I, there was a serious experiment in parliamentary government which foundered for several reasons, including local corruption and the nationalist reaction to the tutelage of foreign states. A few vestiges of that experiment still exist. You may hear about the Waft Party in Egypt, which actually grew up under the monarchy during the period when there was a parliamentary experiment. But in such cases, these regimes generally fall back on a strongman or a group of strongmen, usually from the military. In the 1950s and 60s, of course, the flavor of the year was pan-Arab nationalism with a socialist flavor. This was a period of Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt. And um, subversion and the influence of that went all the way across the Middle East. Uh, it failed to deliver what it promised. Uh, it lost a crucial uh, war with Israel. Nasser died, and that sort of faded. Now, this points up a vulnerability of the current euphoria that seems to be animating many people in the Middle East, and which is associated with the Arab dawn. Many of those who supported the overthrow of Mubarak and Ben Ali in Tunisia did so with the expectation that their lives would improve and improve immediately. 
While there were reprehensible instances of corruption and profiteering under the autocratic regimes, there simply will not be an immediate increase in wealth in these societies. So there are going to be disappointments, inevitably. Uh, it's going to take time, even if they stick with it. How these masses react to this disappointment when they realize it will take time, persistence, and patience uh, will test the support for the movement. Egypt, for example, will still, for example, will still be producing six to seven hundred thousand college graduates per year for which there are no jobs. That's a fact. It's not going to change. And so we have to watch the fact that these people, many of whom supported this movement to overthrow these dictators for various reasons, um, will not in all cases maintain their unity when they begin to struggle for power. One aspect of these protests is worth noting, and that is that it was the pro-Western re relatively moderate our less draconian dictators who fell easily in Tunisia and, Morocco and uh, Egypt. This should not surprise us, because we have known for a long time, for example, that sanctions, which we seem to love in many cases, are much more effective and potent against friends than they are against enemies. And these were, in a sense, friends of ours. And when we withdrew our, re our support, it was a fatal blow. Gaddafi has been driven out, and I think he's finished, although he may linger on and fight for a long time. It could be a, a good while. But it was a unique situation in the fact that Libya, in fact, is one country with two rival regions, Cyrenia and Tripolitania. And the circumstances there made it possible for the people in the eastern part of the country to have a territory in which they could mount an opposition and fight their way back. As I said, he is finished, but the mopping up may take a good while. Syria is a more difficult case, and Bashar Assad has been willing to massacre his own people to retain his grip. He has his father's brutality without his cunning, unfortunately. Hafiz, his father, uh, was a much more subtle and much more effective uh, man when it came to putting down resistance. Nevertheless, what's going on there is an existential struggle for his regime, which is made up mainly of minority Alawites, and for other minorities, including the Christians, who support him out of fear of the majority of Sunni Muslims in that country. Despite his ability to hang on, I believe his regime has been mortally wounded and will soon go. Um, because it has lost support within um, uh, the Arab world and the broader region. Uh, I saw this morning that the Turks had seized a Syrian ship carrying arms to Syria and said there will be no arms going to Syria through Turkish waters, land, or airspace. So that is, a, is another loss for them because it was a reasonably good relationship. His alliance with Shia Iran is a further disability, and I don't have time to get into Iran. We can do that later. 
in inter-Arab relations, and Syrian opposition elements thus far have proven themselves unexpectedly resistant and persistent. Let me conclude this hurried summary with some thoughts regarding what this means for the United States. Assuming that the Arab dawn results in reasonably democratic governments in any of the countries in turmoil, I think we can count on bilateral relationships that are less friendly and harmonious with Egypt and other more moderate states than we have enjoyed in the past. The reason for this is that the Arab populations have long been more critical of U.S. policies than many of the leaders uh, who have made uh, good relations with the United States for their own interests. In fact, the autocrats and dictators have, have for a long time insulated us from this reality. And let me hasten to add that popular hostility toward policies of the United States is not the result of a dislike of Americans. If you ask an Arab or who they like as people, they will tell you more often than not, Americans, if they have any experience with them. Or, nor is it, as some have alleged, out of a dislike for our way of life. The ordinary Arab believes that our foreign policy in the Middle East has often been wrong and just as frequently been unjust. We can argue whether this is unfair criticism or not, but there are many in Europe and more than you may expect in this country who would agree in some measure with that judgment. Anti-Americanism in the Middle East, furthermore, will be exacerbated by events at the United Nations this week and next. It was perhaps inevitable that the spirit of the Arab Spring would also affect Palestinians who have been under occupation for 45 years. Despite the credible efforts of President Obama to end the constant seizure of parts of any future Palestinian states, um, the prize for which the Palestinians are expected to negotiate shrinks almost daily. Now the leadership has decided to seek recognition of their state at the United Nations to the chagrin and opposition of Israel and of the United States. A few points regarding this sorry charade. The argument that states cannot be created by a UN resolution is bogus. The fact is there is a precedent. It is Israel, which was created by a UN Security Council resolution. Second, the Palestinians have to be aware that whatever happens in New York, they will still have to negotiate with Israel on specifics, borders, uh, passage, all sorts of sharing of water. There's no sound reason, in my view, why a UN resolution should present, prevent a resumption of negotiations. And both the United States and Israel at least pay lip service to this two-state solution. The United States has presented itself as an honest broker in the search for negotiated peace, and at times this has been true. A veto of the proposed resolution will be interpreted in the Arab world and much of the rest of the international community as an abdication of that pretense. 
we would lose much of our remaining influence in the region, not in defense of Israel's survival and security, but to serve one of its hardline policies. It is going to be even more difficult time to be an American diplomat in the Middle East. And finally, this episode can have serious implications for Israel itself, which I don't think have been thought through. Although Tel Aviv would probably not acknowledge it, one significant line of defense over many years has been the relationships and influence of the United States with the Arab world. Without that buffer, the U.S. has been able to, to exercise in the past, and given the deterioration in relations with Egypt and with Turkey, long a close friend of Israel, Israel will be more isolated than it has been for many decades. Um, <clears throat> unless there is some way found to have real progress toward a resolution. Israel today is more relatively powerful in the region than it ever has been in the past and probably will ever be again in the future. What a tragedy it would be if this opportunity were frittered away um, when, when there is a favorable confluence of factors, including a very sincere war weariness throughout most of the Middle East, um, for Israel to make an accommodation with the area in which inevitably it must exist. That failure has the potential to imperil Israel's long-term survival prospects. Now, if you think this is an apocryphal judgment, think of where the United States was, its situation, its prospects in the early 90s following the implosion of the Soviet Union, and see what a dramatic turnaround has occurred until today. Thank you very much. That is a very hard act to follow, and an excellent tour d'horizon of the uh, region that will, I'm sure, prompt a number of questions. I want to look at one aspect of what's going on in the American apparatus to understand what's go uh, happening in the Middle East, and that's the intelligence world. CIA was founded, as you know, in 1947 essentially to prevent future Pearl Harbors. President Truman agreed to sign the bill creating CIA because he was also terribly concerned about what was happening in the Soviet Union, but it was largely to prevent uh, the United States from being attacked without warning in the future that gave birth to CIA. In 19, in, uh, Ten years ago, 2001, 9-11, the intelligence community, though it had been rushing around for nearly a year saying something big was going to happen, was not able to give our president, George W. Bush, precise information about when and where. There were reasons for this. After 1991, as Nat just mentioned, 
with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the world of intelligence gathering changed. That which had animated the intelligence community uh, throughout the Cold War had all of a sudden been uh, turned on its head. And a good many people left the agency, they retired, they went off into the private sector. We had never been able to preserve sufficiently or even create a sufficient basis in hard language capabilities. We still have difficulty with that. A year or so ago, the, uh, it was announced officially by CIA that it, only 30% of its clandestine services officers spoke a foreign language. There's little area knowledge. There had been little area knowledge in the uh, important countries of the Middle East uh, that was preserved from that 1991 period. So when 9-11 occurred, we were at a fairly low ebb in terms of both collection of intelligence, uh, precise intelligence on terrorism, and on understanding what was going on in that part of the world. Since that time, and that's what I want to emphasize today, we have embarked on a, a discovery, a rediscovery of our roots. We have, we, CIA was the first agency in, after, into Afghanistan after 9-11 with Gary Schroen, uh, a person whom I've had the pleasure of meeting, picked out of the retirement line at CIA and said, you will get six others and you will go to Afghanistan. You will come in from Uzbekistan or Tajikistan. You will land in the Panjshir Valley. You will join up with the Northern Alliance, largely Tajiks and Tajikis, and see if you can wrest the control of Kabul and the rest of the country from the Taliban and drive Osama out. They were remarkably successful. This began 17 days after the 9-11 attack. Using a, a, a technique that I scarcely understand of laser painting uh, a hostile area so that the American Air Force could bomb concentrations of Taliban troops, they were enormously successful. Now what does this teach us? It teaches us in this particular era, at least in parts of the world, we need to be on the ground and in the outback. It's not going to be possible to recruit uh, sources of information as to what is going on from embassy, from so-called official cover. And in effect, what we're doing is going back to the days of the OSS going back to the Jedburg operations where we dropped men behind enemy lines. William Colby, who was a very strong director of central intelligence and intelligence officer, had dropped into Norway during World War II. There were others who lashed, lashed up with French and uh, European uh, resistance networks to gather information. We're about that business now. Many of you have probably read this recent biography of Wild Bill Donovan, which is a terrific read because Donovan was a absolutely, uh, he, he couldn't be put down. He was an extraordinary character. He was America's most decorated veteran in World War I, and he had to be where the action was. He landed in Normandy and all the rest, and he wanted his people prepared to do the same. When you marry up this ability 
or this determination to uh, go inside, in country, President Obama said, as you recall very recently with respect to Libya, we weren't going to put any boots on the ground. Well, let me assure you, we put plenty of sneakers on the ground. <laughs> and what happened was, and what is happening in Afghanistan now, teaming up with the Predator drone, which is another very happy CIA story. I happened to be in the building at the time that uh, Jim Woolsey, who was Director of Central Intelligence for a brief period, but who had been working on the architecture of overhead reconnaissance system, made the judgment that CIA would purchase the Predator. It had been developed originally by an Israeli engineer who, uh, who uh, uh, had a small company in the United States that didn't make it. It was sold to General Atomic or one of the biggies out in La Jolla, and they were trying to flog it to the U.S. government. And, of course, the Air Force wasn't terribly interested in a reconnaissance aircraft, especially one that didn't have a pilot in it. And Woolsey stepped up and said, I'll get him. And it began that way. Then, eventually, the Predator was fitted out with a Hellfire missile. So you have this combination of people on the ground able to target or able to find out where the bad guys are, and uh, located. It's not, it's not a blessing without complications. There's a relentless non-humanity about uh, a predator destruction that is terribly unpopular, as you can imagine, in Pakistan, which is where the biggest scene of its use has occurred. But it's been the game changer in terms of our ability to try to deal with these, these elements. Now, what does that say about uh, the Arab Spring, uh, about which Nat was talking? It means probably that in areas that are still very much in play, Libya I've already mentioned, Yemen, uh, there are probably operators who are trying to figure out who's on first and what it means. But we can't put all of our eggs in the basket of paramilitary and paramilitary-like capacity. We need to continue to work hard on developing a clandestine service that's willing to go into the, uh, these difficult situations, that has the language and has the uh, area knowledge to make their uh, service uh, work. Some of the things that worry, that I worry about in the current context is that uh, out of the 9-11 Commission report, mo much of it drafted, by the way, here in Charlottesville by uh, Philip Zellico, who was the staff director, it all passed through his PC at one time or another, we learned that in dealing with matters of this kind, there has to be information sharing across all the branches of the U.S. government who have uh, ways to learn uh, what's transpiring in these difficult areas. Sharing of information, you've heard about that. Well, one of the worries, my view, about sharing information is uh, if you cannot protect your agent, if you can't be sure that that information goes only to the people who need to know it, you've got difficulties, as the WikiLeaks uh, business has shown. I hope that doesn't turn out to be a problem. The second thing is a problem that ends the sharing of information, rather. I should be specific. As a workforce, 
CIA is still inexperienced compared to its Cold War strength. More than 50% of CIA's current onboard strength have been hired since 9-11. This is not a mature workforce in that sense. The clandestine service, which I served, was smaller in the year 2000 than it was in 1990 by 25%. That's changed. We've picked up uh, some strength since. But there, are there is still uh, uh, a large burden to carry. Finally, we're spending 80 billions of dollars a year on counterterrorism, according to Donna Priest and William Ar uh, Arkin in the uh, articles that were written for the Washington Post last summer. That's an enormous figure, certainly compared to the days that I remember. And here's what you should know. Because there were gaps in our coverage uh, in the, in, uh, the uh, moment of 9-11, we sought to fill them at least in part by hiring contractors. 30% of the workforce is now contractor, uh, our contractor personnel in the intelligence community. That's an awfully big number. The understanding was clear. If you had gaps, you need to fill them. You needed to fill them in a hurry. And uh, you also might uh, rush in to, to uh, develop expertise on a given country that five years down the road you wouldn't need. And if it was contractor personnel, you could let it go. Perfectly uh, sound motivations. But that 30% of the workforce uh, draws down 49% of the agency's personnel budget we're just not going to be able to continue to afford to do this. So uh, as I look at what uh, challenges we face, I'm extraordinarily impressed by the uh, spy commando, as I call it. But I worry that other aspects of our intelligence world, and I asked Nat uh, before we got on whether he thought this was happening in the Foreign Service, the commitment to a career service the commitment to a 25 and 30 year length of service uh, in gathering information or reporting on it seems to be diminishing. Uh, it may also be happening with military careers. I'm less familiar with that. But if we lose the expertise that Nat brought to the Foreign Service and others like him who'd seen it all before and could, could calibrate it, uh, we're losing a great deal. Thank you. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to this magnificent university. What I'm going to do in looking at the hopes and the fears of the Arab Spring is to provide some of the background data as to why, theoretically, we believe that a movement toward democracy is in a long-run interest of the United States and the people of those countries. Uh, we have some very powerful data now that shows those correlations. But then, sadly, I'm going to have to shift to the fear side of the equation and to point out, as um, Ambassador Howell has indicated, we really 
don't yet know how the Arab Spring is going to turn out. But fasten your seatbelts for a moment because we're going to go very quickly through a series of slides to show you some of the powerful information we now have as to why democracy is such an important form of government in benefiting everyone generally. Now, let's just look at the first of those, and that is something called the democratic peace, that democracies rarely, if ever, wage war against other democracies. That is the most powerful correlation we have yet found to date about war and peace. I had the, um, the great privilege of setting up and running the U.S. federal agency that was a parallel to the National Institute of Health in looking at where wars come from. And after the first five years of all of our study, this was, in fact, the most important finding. You can see from this slide a little bit about uh, the importance of those uh, numbers. If you look at the war years in which democracies or non-democracies are fighting each other, you'll see that democracies have been fighting other democracies, that is, with major wars of over a thousand casualties at virtually a zero rate uh, since 1816. On the other hand, non-democracies have been fighting democracies and non-democracies on an equal opportunity basis uh, for a rather substantial uh, period of time and number of wars. Now let's shift to the question of human rights because we know from a book that we funded at the U.S. Institute of Peace called Death by Government that non-democratic governments have been slaughtering their own people at a rate in the 20th century that is absolutely staggering. Now, this is one of the most important facts about international relations in the 20th century that we have. And what it shows is that uh, totalitarian regimes that the author of this study called mega murderers are actually killing their people at an unbelievable rate. If you look at what happened under Lenin and Stalin, for example, or Mao in China, or the Holocaust in Germany, or Pol Pot in uh, uh, Cambodia, etc. And then the authoritarians, that can be bad also, uh, the author calls the kilo killers that are killing in the tens of thousands, but not the millions. And democracy is not zero, but it's very far down on the uh, overall chain. In fact, if you were to look at the totality of all combatant deaths in all wars of the 20th century combined, it's that little orange or the pink part of that chart. And the democide by totalitarian and authoritarian regimes is the green part. The democide by democratic nations is that little yellow sliver. So you can see this is actually showing that bad governments are slaughtering their own people at a rate twice to four times the totality of all combatant casualties in all wars combined in the 20th century. It's a staggering fact about the nature of the world in which we live. Then let's look at economic development. Well, surely economics relates to simply education and whether you have resources and your closeness to markets, that's surely not a matter of your form of governments or the right structure. But uh, it turns out that it's the right structure that is the single most important factor. 
Professor North won the Nobel Prize for showing that this was true throughout human history. And uh, here is a recent study that divides the world into five different categories, quintiles of uh, greater to lesser levels of democratic freedom. And you can see the perfect correlation here. The most free quintile is that yellow. And you can see how it moves all the way down to the pink at the other end. The least uh, free group of 20% states are not only not growing, they are going backwards. One of the things that was happening under the regime of Saddam Hussein is, in fact, it was moving backwards economically as opposed to uh, going forward. Now, let's look at uh, this simple slide. This is one of my favorites to capture this point of uh, uh, the difference. Same people, probably North Korea has better resources. This is a, a satellite night view of North Korea and South Korea. Nothing could show you more dramatically the difference in economic development of what a disastrous economic system will, uh, or political system, will generate. Uh, the same thing was true, by the way, of Afghanistan under the Taliban. Uh, probably the two worst systems on planet Earth uh, were that system and, secondly, uh, the North Koreans that are sadly uh, still in power. Now, how about environmental protection? Surely environmental protection is a matter of uh, simply uh, markets being uh, 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 exploited uh, in relation to uh, private sector activities, et cetera. And we know from welfare economics that externalization is one of the problems in, uh, in operation of markets. But it turns out that, in fact, and we can show you a lot of data on it, this was simply an early study from the Norwegian Peace Institute. Uh, but if you compared East Germany with West Germany, you would find, for example, horrendous environmental problems in East Germany, and the German government is to this day continuing to spend billions in trying to resolve the environmental issues in East Germany. In short, bad government uh, can do far more damage to the environment even than what we think of as externalization uh, from markets. How about famine? Well, surely famine doesn't relate to a form of government. That's simply a matter of whether you happen to have a potato blight in Ireland or whether it's a, a matter of uh, too much rain or not enough rain. But no, it turns out that famine is most directly related to form of government, whatever the crop happens to be in a particular case. We have seen famines in areas of extraordinary abundance of food. And uh, we know also at the other end of the equation that even when there are very low quantities of food, it is very easy with state policy to avoid famines. So it turns out to be a matter of distant governments that don't care of totalitarian regimes. And this was a study from a professor you might recognize, an Indian professor uh, was at Harvard at one point and won the Nobel Prize for this work, Amatra Sen, showing the direct correlation between non-democracies and famines uh, that take place around the world. When you ask yourself today where are the worst famines, North Korea, 
We were heading for one in which we thought was probably a million people dying uh, in Afghanistan under the uh, Taliban, and happily uh, the change took place in that regime before it happened. Now how about terrorism? Well, this one is something we would expect a little bit more. Just to take the United States uh, terrorism list uh, and look at the countries on that list and compare them with the form of government, you can see that they're all totalitarian or autocratic authoritarian regimes. None of them are democracies. How about corruption? Well, you can have corruption in every, every country in the world, but when you run the Transparency International Corruption Index against either a, an index of democracy or levels of economic freedom, you will see that there is a direct skew of that chart showing that you have higher levels of corruption in non-democratic regimes, a greater failed economic setting, which of course generates the uh, part of the incentive for corruption. How about refugee flows? Same thing, using the United Nations and the uh, other uh, U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants data on the internet, uh, you can see that there is a dramatic correlation again between people fleeing their countries. It is of course why the old Soviet Union had to put up the Berlin Wall. And when uh, Fidel Castro took over in Cuba, you had about a 10% of the population fleeing. Uh, same thing happened with the Taliban going into Afghanistan, and uh, then it goes back the other way when you get a better government in those settings. Now, that's the good news of what we hope will happen uh, from the Arab Spring in many of these countries. And we have powerful data that in the aggregate shows that democracy is strongly uh, in our interest in a variety of different uh, uh, correlations. However, we don't really know. Will we see truly democratic institutions in Tunisia and Egypt and Libya and Yemen and Syria and the other uh, Arab states? And the answer is we don't yet know. Will the democratic revolutions there instead uh, empower America's enemies or be taken over by non-democratic groups? We don't know a great deal about modalities for effective democracy building, and the goal we fully understand has to be not simply electoral democracy or free elections. You have to go to the governments that are set up that provide the checks and balances, the great Madisonian insight. We were just a, enormously blessed in the United States with one of the greatest political geniuses that ever lived that set it up with separation of powers and checks and balances and power set off against power. And that's what we have to wait and see. Will the individual be protected from the state? Will you have effective uh, uh, free media and uh, effective judicial system, et cetera? And then we have this real problem we worry about. Will you have elections one time, the so-called one person, one vote, one time problem with the bad regimes then coming to power and systematically setting aside the constitutions as we saw by Hamas in Palestine or Chavez in Venezuela. So we really don't know whether groups such as the Muslim Brotherhood will embrace democracy and reject violence as the transmissions uh, go forward. 
So thank you for uh, the opportunity to uh, present some of this data for you. Um, thank you guys for coming, first off. Uh, my question is primarily for Professors Hitz and Howell. Um, Professor Howell, you mentioned that there was kind of a rise of anti-Americanism um, in the Middle East. And then Professor Hitz, you talked extensively on the intelligence community, especially with reference to uh, sneakers on the ground, uh, particularly in the Middle East. I was wondering how you thought those two ideas might uh, intertwine. Having spent time in the Middle East myself, often as an Arabic speaker, the first question that you get is, why are you here? Uh, why do you speak Arabic? Why do you study Arabic? Um, and you know, a lot of times that's like, well, maybe this guy works for the CIA. That there's there's a definite fear there amongst Arabs, and I was just wondering either what the intelligence community does to address that, or what it should do to address that. Thank you. Am I on? Okay. Um, yeah, this is a problem. Uh, I think it's a problem the Arabs have. When I was studying Arabic in Beirut, they used to look at me and they would say, oh, you're going to the spy school, which there was a spy school that the British ran at uh, Shemlan, but we had our school in Beirut as well. And my answer to that was, yes, I'm going to master Arabic and then I'm going, they're going to drop me into the Yemen and I'm going to pass for a Yemeni. I mean, if you've ever seen a Yemeni, they're about three feet tall. Um, I said, you know, but seriously, this is a lack of confidence. I said, you think your language has nothing in it that's worth knowing? I mean, you know, that was my, and they was, oh, yeah, no, no, it's, it's, you know, we got a lot to say. I said, well, then why do you object to somebody learning your language? Are you saying things we shouldn't hear? I don't know. But let me, let me say one thing about, um, about resources. Uh, you mentioned the, the, the CIA cadre. Uh, the State Department was reduced every year I was in it from 1965. Um, when the Soviet Union imploded, we created 14 new embassies without a single additional officer being assigned to the Department of State, which meant that other embassies had to be stripped because we're talking about 4,000 people worldwide to staff the Department of State and all the missions overseas. It's a little larger now. Uh, so we're not putting the resources into places. We had gotten to such an extent, I was in, in Kuwait the summer the Iraqis invaded, my political officer left in May, and his replacement was due in in September. Because we no longer have contact replacement. We no longer have that ability to say, this guy over here can tell you about this, and let me introduce you to these people. And that may be explaining why uh, the appeal of the Foreign Service as a career is diminishing if it, you have to do too much. That's right. That's right, it is. So um, we've got a lot of resources in a lot of places. Secretary Gates made a telling, do you know there are more military bandsmen in the military than there are people working on, in Foreign Service? Let me say a little something about the question uh, with respect to this uh, gentleman being taken for a CIA person because he spoke such good Arabic, uh, would that were the case in terms of our own language speaking, that is the CIA's own language speaking. But let's put it this way, we're working on it. And I 
mention this because I throw it open to you as citizens of the United States. It's sort of a parallel to Nat's point about not uh, providing sufficient appropriations so that the State Department could man all the bureaus that it has open or wants to open. The same thing is true with respect to American language training. We've been on this case at least since Sputnik. And the fact of the matter is you're not going to get it. I see it all the time in the wonderful students I have the privilege of teaching. They're taking Arabic. They get it. They're taking Chinese. But that's not the kind of study that's going to lead to fluency. They haven't got the time to put in the effort to do that. And I think this country has to set up a series of stipends, scholarships, call them what you will, a fee-for-service. You learn that language so that you can give an interview on Al Jazeera and agree to give the U.S. government five years of your service, and we're going to pay you a decent wage to do that. Unless we get serious about it in that fashion, we're not going to overcome this particular hurdle. I have two questions. Um, the first one is legal, so we'll start with that. Um, Professor Hitz, you were mentioning about the, the predator drones um, and whatnot, and I would like to hear a little bit about the legality of the use of predator drones. In particular, I've read some articles that suggest that if non-uniform personnel are flying them, that uh, potentially that is, um, you know, comes to the realm of war crimes, since it's not mil a military operation. That's the first one. The second one is, and it, and it goes back um, to what you said in the beginning, uh, Professor Howell, regarding um, uh, the Arab Spring and, and, and uh, the, you know, the, what's currently going on in the UN. Um, can you explain what the strategic relationship is between the United States and Israel? I mean, I get the, <laughs> the long-term um, uh, relationship. Uh, it, you know, it's cultural, it's moral. Um, I'm not in the intelligence community nor in the military community. Maybe there are some things, but I don't see, uh, you know, Israeli troops going into Iraq with us or anywhere else. We don't so, want them. Well, of course we don't. So if you could maybe elaborate a little bit on what really is the strategic value of our alliance well, with Israel. Let's get the legal. Thank you. I will uh, take that uh, legal issue since uh, this is what we uh, do in the national security course uh, all the time. The answer is that... Uh, in general, the, um, uh, the drone program is lawful. There are a number of different issues you would look at. One is classically in international law, whether the use of force itself is lawful as opposed to how it's done. And on that, uh, the answer is we are engaged in a, a defensive effort, which is lawful under the UN Charter, under Article 51 of the UN Charter. And secondly, in every single case, we have also had permission of the government itself, of the country in which uh, uh, the drones have been aimed, whether that was Yemen or whether that was uh, Pakistan. So there is a double legal basis for the lawfulness of the use of the drones. Um, there are also a variety of uh, what are called law of war issues, classically in international law use in bellow, one of, of, of which is uh, the question of, generally speaking, when you are engaged in war, uh, you have to be wearing a uniform and carrying your arms openly. The drones are fired from a long distance away. The purpose of that rule in international law is so people would know the difference between combatants and non-combatants. Since any drone operators that uh, are not in the military are not on the battlefield, you don't have that issue, and so it really isn't uh, a problem 
in relation to uh, the policy of the uh, underlying the law of war. Can I just make two additional sort of footnotes? I think, John, uh, you're right in that we have Pakistan's permission to be in country and using the drone. I don't think we go to the government of Pakistan uh, when we have a target and get their permission to fire it. And that is probably the way it should be, but there, that's where you are. Uh, I have the pleasure, again, of a student who spent four years as a predator pilot in Las Vegas. So you have this rather colorful situation. Everybody's playing with where he was, exactly, where he was doing his nine to five in the tunnel doing the targeting, and then he went out uh, a little tired and overworked mentally and played the slots all night. It's a different view of warfare. Let, let me just add to that, uh, we do not need under international law to be getting uh, the approval for each individual right. uh, uh, Shooting uh, basically, it is it's it's a uh, uh, an understanding and approval by the country that were there. Just as if you were engaged in a defensive effort in trying to get Saddam Hussein out of out of Kuwait, you need a Kuwaiti government uh, permission initially to provide collective defense. You don't need then to go to the Kuwaiti government to uh, ask permission for every one of the strategic decisions you're making. Uh, let me. Let me uh, yeah, uh, deal with the other question, but say a lot of these governments, I'm never sure when these drones come in and everybody shouts whether they're just exercising plausible deniability and they, they want it that way so that they can posture yes. with their people and we can do what we need. The question was the basis of our relationship with Israel. Um, the United States has supported Israel from the beginning. We were one of the first to recognize it. The other one was the Soviet Union, and then they sort of dropped off for a while. Um, and we have a strong interest in the survival and the welfare and security of Israel. It's sometimes said we are allies. When I was studying foreign relations, allies meant some sort of a, a legal situation. It was not something you threw around that anybody who was a friend was an ally. Uh, that may have changed in, in the course of the language. We don't have any uh, formal agreements with Israel, either to come to their aid, as far as I know, or uh, that they will do this and that under certain circumstances. So this is, a, as far as I know, basically informal. Um, I remember asking a senior official when they started talking about how it was a strategic asset what they would do in case of, uh, this was during the Cold War, what Israel would be able to do for us if we went to war with the Soviet Union. And he said, cut out the lights when it's all over. <laughs> uh, basically, any time we get into a conflict, and this is going to be true, as I said, until Israel makes its accommodation with the region in which it is, the best thing they can do for us is stay out of it. Because if they come into it, they complicate things with us with getting cooperation on the other side. You recall during Desert Shield and Desert Storm, we were rushing Patriot missiles over there to keep them from getting in it. Uh, so 
they made a contribution by just keeping quiet, taking the missiles, and, and defending themselves and not getting in the conflict. So they, they, they don't have a positive one. Althea says we have five minutes. Oh, five minutes? <laughs> You're a taskmaster. <laughs> <laughs> The news, the news media, anytime you're seeing, you know, riots break out or acts of terrorism so, so much, all the time there are men displayed. And in the governments of the non-democracies in, in that area, all the time you see men. What I'm looking at, the question that I have, particularly for our first two speakers, is the resource that's not used and not displayed by the news media are the women. They've got intelligence. They've got they've got a lot of they've got a lot of things, but the religion sort of suppresses their contribution. So my question is, what role do you see for the women to be able to affect change in a positive, democratic manner, or at least to reduce the level of terrorism? Uh, you want me to? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'll cut you off. All right. Uh, the women have an important role to play, and, and you may not see them on television, but there are a lot of them. In Egypt, there have been some very active women for a long time. I think, for example, back around the post-World War II period, Aziza Hussein, who was a big uh, campaigner for birth control and things of this sort. So uh, I know during the, for example, during the Iraqi occupation of Kuwait, which I know very well, uh, having shared the accommodations provided by Mr. Saddam. Uh, the uh, women in Kuwait played a tremendously important, I mean, they had a lot of assets. First, they're not as likely to be suspected. Second, they wore, which they don't always do otherwise, but they wore these tremendous abayas, which you can carry three Kalashnikovs hanging I'm around. And they smuggled the weapons all around town. They led demonstrations where on the, uh, the monthly anniversary, they all went out on their roofs and they ulalated. Have you ever heard the ulalations? You remember Lawrence of Arabia when they left the Wadi Rum to go attack Aqaba and they rode by and these women were up on there? That's the way they send their men into battle. And they drove the Iraqis nuts. <laughs> until they started killing them, and then they had to back off of that. So, I mean, Kuwait, for example, you wouldn't believe it, but Kuwait has women in parliament. They have four parliamentarians. Uh, they have an ambassador who's a woman. Uh, they have minister, uh, vice ministers and the, dean, the president of the university. So there's a lot more going on with women in, in some places in the Arab world that you wouldn't expect to look for them. And, and I expect them to play an increasingly important role. And in Afghanistan, too. Make no mistake about it. In Kabul and other places where there's a lot of commercial activity, the women do not want to go back home and take care of the pots and pans. The children want to continue to go to school. So we've got an awful lot of assets of that kind keeping the Taliban at bay. We have very little time and a lot of speakers, but I'm, I'd like to ask Nat a question, really, that's the, uh, the question mark on, on my last slide. I know you have no crystal ball, although some of us think you might. Uh, but in any event, uh, can you tell us what the conditioning factors are when you look at what's likely to happen in the Arab Spring? Are we going through time to go to liberal democracy, more serious democracy, or 
is there, what's the level of risk that this is going to be uh, well, basically sidetracked? I think basically you have to recognize that nobody gets to liberal democracy in one swell foop. Marshall swell swoop. <laughs> <laughs> I said it the wrong way so long, I still say. Um, it's going to be, democracy is a messy process. Look at us. And, uh, you know, I, and there are various routes. It doesn't have to look like us. The Gulf are dealing out of a consensus. We talk about the emirs and that thing as if they had absolute carte blanche. They don't. They have to build a consensus. And so they approach it from that direction. But I found out, for example, that if I have a problem and I'm in Kuwait or Bahrain or Oman, I know where the emir is and I can go talk to him on the given night that he's sitting. If I want to tell the President of the United States what I, I realized this when I was in the State Department, I write him a letter, some clerk stamps, buck to state, it comes over to me and I have to answer it. The President never sees it. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, we say we have this wonderful system, but it has its flaws too, so it's going to take a long time for this to develop. One of the encouraging things is this year Jefferson's uh, selections from Jefferson were published in Arabic and, and uh, an extensive. So there are people who are aware of this. We had the former reformist president of Iran here several years ago, and he had read Jefferson, and he had read Montesquieu, and he had read a lot of the people Locke and the people that were went into our system. So there are a lot of people who are studying these things. Now whether they can overcome um, the people who aren't studying anything uh, is, is a question that I think all countries have. So our right. wife is, can be dependent yeah. on to shut me out. One more question. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Alumni Association is going to get me. <laughs> uh, welcome to the Library Association. You're up. Uh, the question regards negotiations that uh, have been set up in the last uh, 24, 48 hours. And the uh, question is, is it possible for Palestine and uh, Israel to negotiate? They have tried before, and uh, there is a breakdown on both sides. But particularly in some of the negotiations, the Palestinians Palestinians could not follow what was negotiated. Can they, can they do, the, do it next time? Uh, both sides have not followed what was negotiated. Yeah, Benjamin uh, Netanyahu was the man who torpedoed the Oslo Accords by not making the marks. And it was, the Arab Intifada did not arise until he had not made the withdrawals that were specified under Oslo. So I, I'm not blaming one side or the other. They're both to be blamed. Althea, we've got time for this gentleman behind. He's, he wants to go. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Fred. Um, my concern goes to the uh, perhaps a perfect storm here of the very capable General Petraeus going to CIA and when have we ever had someone who's so vested, who knows the theater that well and is so vested in the outcome as we all are with treasure and loss of life, but um, what would prevent the, the agency from becoming a, with shrinking budgets and all this pressure, of becoming a um, uh, uber fighting force 
and um, the advent of the drones that you so strongly stress and the effectiveness of <clears throat> our conventional military sort of being back in, in reserve and the CIA becoming the point of the spear and with all the um, sort of less than conventional forces. It seems like that would be the future and the CIA becomes hugely more powerful, more germane, and more shrouded in mystery. At the same time that CIA is going back to the its origins in building up this spy commando group, there's something called JSOC that you know well, the Joint Special Operations Command, that's come into its own. It had, had a horrible birthing. <laughs> JSOC was the outfit that was tasked with uh, going in in the Carter administration to try to rescue the hostages. And remember, it's uh, helicopters sort of gathered dust in the middle of the desert, and they couldn't pull it off. Well, they're not that way anymore. And a lot of what uh, uh, CIA is doing is just uh, one of the appendages to a JSOC capability involving the SEALs, Army Rangers, and a whole other, uh, number of things. In short, the military is not going to get out of this. But my 17 days with Gary Schroen getting in, first in, in Afghanistan is something that still the military has trouble with. If you read about it, you realize that Rumsfeld was going, he was pulling his hair out. And he was saying, you know, I want our guys in there fast. And they said, but there's no search and rescue uh, 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 possibility, Mr. Secretary. We can't do it. So quick reaction, you'll t still have CIA. Petraeus is a policy wonk. He's got a big PhD from Princeton, and he's very good at back and forth. He's going to make those analysts uh, really perform. If they come before him and try to uh, uh, you know, fog it by him, he's going to nail them. And I think this is going to be very healthy for the organization. He obviously won't give up his military background, but he's, he's as much a, an intellectual in that sense as we're likely to find in it. And the final point, when have we ever had a guy like Petraeus? What about Bill Casey, whom John knew and whom I worked for? Bill Casey got in that job with the experience of OSS very much in his background. And he wanted to fight the commies. And what he should have been is either the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of State. He shouldn't have been the Director of Central Intelligence because he was taking the uh, analytical product and just tilting it around so that, you know, if the Pope got shot, that was surely a, a Russian spy who did that. Oh, so yeah. you, you never knew what, you, know, you never know what you're going to get based on the packaging. That was not long enough at all. Um, an hour is way too short to have three wonderful speakers with such great knowledge. Um, let's give them another round of applause. <laughs> On behalf of the Alumni Association and the Office of Engagement, we have gifts for them. Um, the bookstore is selling books, their books, um, right out in the annex, and uh, we're, they're going to make their way uh, there just shortly. We also have a few drawings, and thanks for coming this week. This weekend. All right, we're going to draw two names and if you'll